This is Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager, Canada's national source for the latest agronomic research, crop production, and technology trends. You've tuned in to hear conversations about relevant research, best production practices, and everything in between. Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager, is sponsored by Economics. To quickly make sense of today's crop nutrition research and maximize your return on investment, visit nutrient-economics.com. That's economics with a K. Hello, and thanks for joining us for another episode of Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager. I'm your host, Stephanie Crowley, editor of Top Crop Manager. With Harvest on the Horizon, we're going to chat today about some post-harvest best practices. And joining me is Robert Mullen, the Director of Agronomy Sales with Nutrien. Hi, Robert, and thanks for chatting with us today. Good morning, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Robert, can you tell us a bit about your background and your role with Nutrien before we get started? Certainly. So I joined at the time, it was Potash Corporation of Saskatchewan back in 2011. Uh, I joined that entity as the director of agronomy. And then as we transitioned with the merger to Nutrien in 2018, uh, I was fortunate enough to retain that title of director of agronomy. Prior to my stint in industry, I spent seven years as an assistant professor and then an associate professor at Ohio State University as the soil fertility specialist for the state. Uh, and prior to that, I actually worked for a small precision ag firm just out of my PhD program for a couple of years. Awesome. So you've definitely got some great knowledge here that you're going to share with us and our um, listeners today. So thank you very much again for joining us. Thank you very much. So let's get started. Um, we're going to chat about harvest and with harvest starting across Canada, or at least on the horizon and, and growers thinking about harvest, everybody's focusing on yields and eva- evaluating crop performance to make decision for next year's seed decisions. So can you talk about some of the key things growers should be thinking about for next year's crop as their harvest approaches an end this year? Certainly. So so there's some things that, that we really, from the fertility side, that we really want farmers to be focused on. And and, and the biggest thing for me is is what did you learn from this cropping season? Um, for, for a lot of us uh, across a lot of southern Canada, it seemed to be fairly dry early. Um, we've, we've been fortunate to get some, some rains late, which can, hurtly sell, can certainly help some of our crops. Um, but just what did you learn? What practices did you put into place this year? What did you observe? Sometimes I think the, the farming community doesn't give enough credence to their own observation and what they can learn from it. Um, what sort of visual symptomology did you see? Does that trigger a, a change in the way I manage my inputs for the upcoming season? Those kinds of things are, are absolutely critical to the success of the farming operation. Um, there, as a soil fertility guy, it, it's probably no surprise that, I, that I'm also really big on beyond just your observations of the growing season and, and what your crop told you about what was going on in the soil. Also really big on soil testing. So capturing some information as we get out of harvest and, and start gearing up to make decisions for, okay, what do I need to change for next year? So that that visual symptomology, what I observed this year can tell me a lot. Soil testing is going to tell me a lot. <clears throat> and then paying close attention to what the, the scale is telling you when you're delivering that product to the market. So just how much did I yield? And allowing all of these things to be integrated into a decision of, okay, what do I need to change if I need to change anything? 
what nutrients do I need to key on? Maybe it's something I haven't thought about in the past. Maybe there's some more information coming out from uh, the provincial researchers who are, who are indicating, hey, we're, we're starting to see more sulfur deficiency on these types of soils, uh, more phosphorus deficiency on, in, within this cropping system. Just trying to collect as much information as possible to come up with uh, a decision going into next year. Well, that's great. And it sounds like you kind of advise growers to really trust themselves and their instincts and seeing what they've observed this year. So um, with that said, are there any misconceptions that you see when it comes to making those decisions in terms of what growers can do and and how they make their decisions about the level of nutrients that they need for their next crop? Certainly. So there's some things that some farmers, I'm not going to say misconstrue, but maybe some things they misunderstand. The biggest one is, is just what kind of information do we capture with soil testing? Sometimes we rely too heavily upon one piece of information. That's my biggest thing as it relates to farmers making decisions. And I employ this in my own life. To be honest with you, I I never take a perspective based upon one piece of information. It it should be a perspective that is dictated by other observations and and multiple observations to, to allow me to come up with a position. And that's really what I stress to farmers. So it's not just relying upon that one soil test report that said, you know what, my potassium level is is through the roof. I'm never going to have to worry about potassium level. Now, if you're living in in, uh, western Saskatchewan into Alberta, those soils are fairly natively rich in potassium. And maybe those soils are are something that's not going to be terribly responsive moving down the road, um, at least not in the short term. But if you're a farmer in Manitoba and if you're in Ontario specifically and you see that really high soil test K come back, don't just treat that as the end all do all factor that influences my decision with regard to potassium nutrition. I'm just using this as an illustration for potassium, but but this would go for for a lot of the other nutrients as well. It's really a, a position of, okay, what is my crop telling me? And then coming back in subsequent years and capturing some information with that soil test that informs my decision. As great as the tools that we have at our disposal are, and I I am familiar with a lot of the researchers that are conducting a lot of this work in Canada, there's there's always some missing pieces that we miss out on experimentally. And so just I'm not I hate to use the word blindly relying upon someone else's perspective. Um, maybe that's the best way I can describe it. It's it's really the farmer putting into practice what he sees, what he's learning from other folks, that includes researchers, that can include other farmers uh, in their neighborhood that that are trying different practices. It's really about formulating everything that you, collecting as much information as you possibly can to make a decision. And and sometimes I think farmers, and and you, as the intro to this question, you sort of pointed out, sometimes farmers don't trust what they see. And and I tell farmers this all the time, the, in, the individuals that have the most information about their fields is not the guy that's running the lab. It's not a researcher that's uh, conducting research at a university. It's the farmer that's been farming that ground for a number of years. You have a lot of information that maybe you just haven't paid attention to. And if, if you could spend a little bit more time focusing on what you're observing as that crop is growing and developing, that can inform a lot. Now, I, I'm not saying dismiss what's coming out of the universities. I, I think a lot of that information is absolutely critical. It's great to provide guidelines for farmer behavior. But at the end of the day, the farmer's the one that's making this business decision and collecting as much information as they possibly can to inform that decision is absolutely critical to the long-term profitability of the operation. I love that perspective. I think that's a really great point to make and, and you know, drawing on 
information from different sources and then you know making your conclusions from there I think that's fantastic so thanks for sharing that um, you talked quite a little bit about soil testing and I wanted to get into that a bit because we know that soil testing is key to nutrient management do you have any recommendations going into the fall season and the harvest season about soil sampling Sure. So this is a question that comes up every year. And as many times as I've talked about it and individuals like myself that are either employed in the industry side or on the the academic side, we always have these guidelines and these rules of thumb that we would like farmers or individuals that are servicing that farming community, we would like them to employ when they're collecting their soil samples. And it it always amazes me how, how many times I get information back from either a farmer or, and it's primarily coming from the farmers where the information that they're collecting, it there seems to be some inconsistency with within uh, what the nutrient levels are, and they're worried about the sampling protocols that are employed by the individuals that are providing that service. Again, I'm not throwing anybody under the bus. Um, I've I've worked with a lot of individuals that that do service that farming com- community, either as an agronomist for a retailer or an independent crop consultant that that servicing that that farmer clientele. A lot of those individuals take great pride in collecting really good information. And this is what I often say about soil testing. The information that you collect is only as good as the sample that's collected in the field. And so what we really stress is consistency in the the soil sampling approach. And and again, sometimes, and and we recognize this, uh, just this past fall, uh, 2018 was a, a really good example of, at least in the Midwest, sampling conditions that weren't just conducive to Uh, individuals getting out and sampling the fields in a timely manner. So you start taking shortcuts. And then the problem with that is when you're not doing a good job of soil sampling, you're you're doing a pretty poor service to your your farmer clientele. So here's what we would recommend. Uh, Number one is consistency of of depth of sampling. That's absolutely critical. Uh, You'd be amazed at how much of of variance can be introduced or how much error can be introduced into that sample simply by collecting a 12 centimeter sample compared to a 10 centimeter sample. Uh, That can make all the difference in the world with regard to just how much nutrient the soil test information says your lab ultimately, or the the soil test information coming from the lab, what it ultimately says about your your soil test uh, level. So sampling depth, the number of samples that are collected, this is this becomes a real challenge with some of the more advanced approaches that we employ for collecting soil sampling. So we can we can collect samples at a relatively high density using GPS, um, using some GIS software to, to interpolate information between sampling points. We can do this at relative relatively fine scales. We can do this from um, a, a two and a half hec- uh, two and a half acre down to a half acre grid size. So we can be anywhere up on that spectrum. But the challenge becomes just how many samples do I collect to represent a, a given area? And that is always a critical point. And, and so many times, and, and again, I understand why they do it. It's a labor savings. Uh, we want to collect fewer samples at the higher densities. And, and there's just not a lot of good data that says that that's a, that's a good idea. So ideally, we want to have a consistent depth and we want to have a consistent number of samples. Uh, five is probably not adequate, um, although there was actually some uh, a publication from University of Illinois a couple of years that said on, on some of their soils that was adequate. That's not something that I would that I would actually broadcast that everybody should be doing. I, I'm much more comfortable with something closer to that 10 and, and ideally even closer to 15 samples to represent a given area. Um, so depth of sampling, the number of samples that are collected. And then the other big one, and this this is really critical um, as we get into fall, because as I look at the the weather patterns and I'm and I'm paying attention to the prairie provinces and just what the soil moisture looks like, a lot of it seems like there's obviously going to be some dry areas, but for the most part, 
Um, it looks like we've gotten some later rainfall, so our, our soil moisture levels are, are pretty good. That's absolutely critical, specifically with regard to things like potassium and pH. Um, we don't want to collect a soil sample when the, the soil is really, really dry. And we also don't want to, that has its own challenges for, for those of us who've tried that. It's really hard to sample a soil when it's a rock. Um, those probes just aren't sharp enough and you just can't generate enough weight to, to get, in, get to the depth that you're desiring to get to. So avoid really, really dry sampling and avoid really, really wet sampling. So if, if your soil is, if your ground is looking more like um, uh, so Southern Florida, <laughs> if, it, if it looks more like a wetland than it does uh, an agricultural field, probably not the best time to be sampling because it's going to alter what your soil potassium information com comes back as, as well as your pH. So those are the really the three things that we key in on. Consistency of depth, collect an adequate number of samples, and avoid moisture um, extremes when you're collecting your samples. That's a great point too. Um, here in Ontario where I'm based, um, we had a terribly wet spring and wet summer. We, All of our growers were delayed in, in planting and um, it's it's starting to even out a little bit now. But, um, you know, in talking about soil sampling, when we look at sampling in the fall maybe versus the spring where it could be really wet again, what are there any advantages over soil testing after harvest in the fall versus, you know, pre-plant next spring? Can you talk about any of those differences? Yeah, sure. So there's there's been a lot of investigation into which is better fall or spring. And as you as you look at a lot of the data that's been collected, there's really no clear cut advantage to either one. The, although, the, again, there's some data out of Iowa where, where they think they found a, a little bit more consistent consistency with the spring sampling compared to the fall. Um, I, I'm not sure that that's enough to sway me that everybody should go spring. Traditionally, the reason that we've primarily collected our soil samples in the fall is a couple different reasons. Accessibility of the field. It's typically not our wettest season. Um, for, for a lot of us uh, across Canada and the Midwest, that's typically going to be spring, although the last three years uh, in certain areas that has not held true. And I, I understand that there's always going to be that, that weather variability that we have to deal with. So it's, it's usually accessibility of the field, the crops are out of the field, labor availability. I, I've got folks around the farm or uh, the, the retail, the, the nutrient service provider that I'm working with has availability of folks. They can get out there and collect those samples. And then also I can collect that information, get it submitted to the lab, get that information back within a, a couple of days and make my decision, okay, what am I gonna do this fall in preparation for next spring? The, there's, there's really no, I mean, those are the real big advantages for the fall. Um, as far as which is the better approach. The one thing that I always say about whether you're a fall or a spring sampler is just be consistent about when you're doing it. Um, we do notice that there, there are alterations in soil, soil fertility level, um, primarily as a function of weather, and that's driven a lot by moisture and temperature. Uh, so our, our fall temps, if we're soil sampling, tend to be a little bit warmer than our spring. And so if, if you're switching from fall to spring, you might see a dramatic difference in what your soil test uh, levels are coming back as and it's it, it has nothing to do with with management it, it doesn't have to do with the fact that I lost a lot of nutrients it has everything to do with the fact that I changed my timing of sampling and then in, in that change I, I'm getting different information about what's coming out of my soil and it's primarily driven by soil temp so the the, the biggest thing is just be consistent I, I I'm a big fan of fall uh, it, it just for the reasons that I've already stated it just makes a lot of sense it, it opens up opportunities for the spring the, the last thing that I would like to, I would want a farmer to have to deal with in the spring is I've got to collect my soil samples, I've got to make decisions on fertilizers, I've got to get the material applied, and then I got to plant. 
Um, that's the other big reason for fall is when springtime hits, uh, weather being what it is, whenever those opportunities arise to get the seed in the ground, we need to take full advantage of those and, and get that crop planted. Absolutely. Okay, that's gr really great points there, Robert. Thanks. Um, so in talking about soil testing again, and if we're if growers are finding that their soils are depleted of nutrients and and you know falling below those levels of potassium and phosphorus and other nutrients that they need, how can those deficiencies impact a grower's return on investment and their yields? Absolutely. So this is the reason we fertilize, right? I mean, this is mm -hmm. this is why my industry exists. Um, it's 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 really been. Uh, what we've seen with regard to agricultural production on this continent is it's rare. It, it's not something that we've seen within other geographies. And, and I think a lot of this, um, a lot of this is, is obviously due to our soils. It's, it's due to the weather patterns that we experience, but it's also due to the uh, investment and charge to identify improved methods of producing crops and doing it not only sustainably from a societal perspective, but also doing it sustainably from a, an economic perspective. And as we think about managing nutrient inputs into crop production fields, if, if a farmer's making a decision that is not resulting in a return on that investment that he's making, it's probably not gonna be a practice that he's gonna be able to employ for too long. And this is really one of the driving factors for a website that we manage as a company, uh, nutrieneconomics.com, that's nutrient, nutrient without the T, N-U-T-R-I-E-N hyphen E-K-O-N-O-M-I-C-S. I realize we misspelled economics, but that was purposeful. Uh, we're a fairly large potassium company, and, and that's the reason for that spelling. But on that site, we have models that are based upon university and published models that would indicate to a farmer or to a service provider just what sort of a return on an investment could I expect from a phosphorus or a potassium input. And again, that's absolutely critical to the farming operation. We're, we're trying to promote management practices that are not only environmentally sound, and, and that's maybe a little bit of a change from where we've been traditionally, but that are also economically sound. Um, it, it's absolutely critical that these farmers remain profitable, and we never want someone to make an investment uh, in a nutrient that's not going to provide a positive return on that investment. Great. So in terms of making your investments, so can we talk a little bit about some of the nutrients that growers may need to replenish after harvesting their crops um, and the different approaches that they might take when evaluating those decisions on what inputs they're going to make? Absolutely. So we, we've already touched on using soil testing. We sort of alluded to and mentioned it. I mentioned it in passing about uh, nutrient removal. That's another key factor. What I typically promote, and and again, you're, you're getting into a little bit of Robert Mullen's perspective on, on how nutrients should be managed. And, and I'm not saying that this is the the, the absolute correct way that everybody should be managing, managing their nutrient inputs, but this is the way I think about things. So I, I wanna collect a soil test because, because that's sort of my ground truth. It tells me where I am with regard to the ultimate supply of nutrients that my soil holds, but then I wanna have some information about just what's being removed out of that system because that's ultimately what we're talking about is a balanced system. Um, I'm producing a crop, that crop is removing nutrients from the soil. I'm harvesting that crop. Uh, at least a portion of it, and removing a certain amount of nutrients out of that soil. And so I have to be mindful of just what I need to be putting back in. So tools that exist out there, and one of them happens to be on our, our economics website, tools that provide us an estimate of how much nutrient is being removed as a function of yield can go a long way in informing, okay, what do I need to be mindful of with regard to input decisions for next year? 
I don't necessarily want to rely solely upon nutrient removal. I think that can, I think that's a very good approach for shorter time periods. So if I'm doing that for two or three years, I think that's, I think that's okay. I think we can manage with that approach, but at some point I have to go back in and collect a soil sample just to see ground truthing wise, just where my soil test is. Um, and, and to me, as I, as I think about how the system works, what I really want to do with soil testing is, and I'm, I'm sort of moving to an annual uh, method of, of collecting soil test information. Again, I, I know this approach doesn't work for everybody, but the primary reason that I would recommend that is I can track what my trend looks like with regard to nutrient concentration in my soil over time. And that trend is what really should be informing my decisions and whether or not I should be changing. So I can use that soil test information, I can use that nutrient removal information and combine those two or just rely upon my nutrient removal for the short term and say, okay, if this is what's what, what I'm removing, this is what I need to be replenishing back into my soil to ensure that I have an adequate nutrient supply for my subsequent crop. That's great. And in terms of specifics, can you touch on some of the key nutrients that growers might need to replenish after harvesting, say, canola, um, wheat and barley or pulses, specifically, you know, to Western Canada? Absolutely. So this is a, there's some really cool things that are going going on in Western Canada, specifically the southern half. I would I would I would guess it is probably going to be concentrated in Manitoba and southern Saskatchewan, although maybe this is starting to creep up into southern Alberta as well. And that is uh, changing crop production systems, all, introducing new crops. So as you think about the traditional crops that are grown in that geography, the wheat, the peas, uh, the lentils, the canola. Um, phosphorus is, is probably going to be your primary nutrient of concern. Um, and, and part of the reason I say that is, is not just based upon the crops that are being grown there, but it's also the nature of the soils on which those, those farmers are operating. Um, that part of the world, we tend to have a soil that is derived from a mineral that is rich in potassium. And those are also what we call relatively unweathered soils. So they have not gone through the same weathering as the soils that are going to be farmed in Ontario. Um, as, and as a part of that natural weathering process, one of the first things that we start to lose is potassium. So in, in, in Western uh, Canada and the Prairie Provinces, those soils are less weathered, so they're going to have more native potassium. So potassium may not be the first thing that they're focused on with regard to um, what nutrient they should be applying, but phosphorus is probably the primary one. There's a caveat to that statement that I want to get to here in a moment. So as you think about lentils, peas, canola, they're going to remove with the exception of lentils, lentils is actually going to remove more potassium than it does phosphorus. Uh, peas are about the same. So they're, if you're harvesting a 50 bushel crop of, of peas, and forgive me, that's the, I think in bushels, I can make that conversion to kilograms per hectare if you really want no, to. No, in fact, we, no, that's okay. We, we work in bushels per acre too here too. So Perfect. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> so if you're thinking about a 50 bushel peas crop, we're talking about 35 to 40 pounds of P205 and K20 being removed, so they're about the same. Uh, lentils actually removes twice as much K as it does uh, phosphorus. Canola is the exact opposite of lentils. Canola is going to remove about 40 pounds versus a 20 if that's a 50 bushel crop. So phosphorus is probably the thing that comes to mind first. Uh, we also have access to soil test information in Western Canada, and that tends to be the nutrient that is, no surprise, that tends to be the nutrient that is most likely to be deficient. Um, if you're thinking about fall, fall fertilization practices. But here's the one caveat that I would say to that, and that is as we start to see more soybeans being introduced into those, and again, specifically into the southern portions of those provinces, that's a game changer. Um, 
because potassium use in soybeans is considerably higher than all of the crops that I had just mentioned. Now, again, it, I'm not saying that everybody that's planting soybeans needs to be applying potash this fall, but they need to be paying attention if they're introducing soybeans into that rotation. And just as an example, 2010, there was just over 500,000 acres of soybeans being grown in the Prairie Provinces. Fast forward to 2017, now we're talking over 3 million acres of soybeans being grown in the Prairie Provinces. That's a fairly substantial increase. And mm -hmm. as we see that shift to more soybeans in rotation, the, the amount of potassium that a soybean crop will remove, a 50 bushel bean crop, which is very attainable. I think the average yields are somewhere in the mid, uh, approaching 40 or in uh, just north of 40 in the Prairie Provinces. That's, we're talking 65 pounds of K2O that's being removed. That's compared to like wheat, a 60 bushel wheat crop is only going to remove about 27. So two and a half X increase in potassium being removed. So as we as we see this shift in cropping, crop rotations and, and introduction, of, introduction of new crops, just be aware that you may need to be paying a little bit closer attention to that K number that you're getting back from that soil test report. But if it's the traditional rotation, traditional crops, phosphorus is probably the first thing that, that comes to mind when we're thinking about crop removal and making a decision on what rate should be applied for next for the next season's crop. Right, and so your notes about soybeans are a good segue into Eastern Canada and, and looking at Ontario and kind of the same kind of questions. Ontario soils, do they lend that same the same situation to growers as growing soybeans in Western Canada would have? Same rules apply there or is it something different? It's a little bit different, and it's and it's again, it's primarily because of the 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 weathering of those soils that have that we've experienced in the eastern eastern half of the country compared to the western half. So we we start to see a lot more potassium deficient soils as you head further east. And if you look at Ontario, and I have access to information, I want to say it's somewhere around 50% of the soils that are submitted for soil sampling come come back as deficient in Ontario. You contrast that with what you see out in the Prairie Provinces, we're typically talking around 20 to 30%. At least in Ontario, you need to be thinking a little bit more about, okay, it's not just phosphorus uh, that I need to key on. It, it also needs to be potassium. And again, I'm not saying that there's no use for potassium in the western part of Canada. It, it's just it's less likely to be the problem. But again, as you change those cropping systems, uh, things are going to change. So in Ontario, pay closer attention to what your K levels are. Excellent. Okay, we've covered a lot of information um, so far, Robert. Um, to wrap up, maybe, are there any kind of final tips or anything else we didn't talk about that you wanted to uh, advise growers as they wrap up their harvest and start thinking ahead for next year? Yeah, I, I'm with you. I feel like I've, I'm pretty bad about that, Stephanie, as you've probably noticed. You ask a, a relatively simple question and I, I go on a diatribe for about five minutes. No, um, that's great. That's great. I, like I, I said, we've covered a lot. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. <laughs> uh, no, I... I I just would like to reiterate what I what I often say to farmers, and it's don't undersell the information that you have at hand based upon your own experience on your farm. That is, there's so much information that these these farmers have collected over the years, that, again, that maybe they haven't given a lot of credence to. And I, I feel like that's probably not the case, but maybe there's just some things that they should be queuing in on, maybe a little bit closer. When they see those oddities in the field, why is that area chlorotic? Why is that yellowed? What's going on in that area? That might be an area of micronutrient nutritional need that I haven't really addressed in the past. Um, th those kinds of things need to be incorporated in their, in their decisions. And then also just educating yourself, finding finding good information. That, that can also be a, a real challenge in, in the digital age is finding, and this is, to, to me, this is the real value of the academics that are employed at the universities that are doing the applied re research. It's Again, it's not so much that they definitively tell us things, 
but they're a really good indication of, okay, this is most likely an issue, and, and then how do I address it as a farmer? So just keeping abreast of what's going on in the space, um, keeping up with the reading, going to those scientific meetings, um, visiting websites like our like the Nutrient Economics site. It's it's what we're ultimately trying to do is convey as much information to the farmer in a usable form. That's maybe where we're trying to differentiate ourselves. Um, I am a recovering academic, so I, I am a scientist at heart, and I do realize that sometimes scientists are not the best at best at conveying usable information. So what we're really trying to do with the site is convey information in a form that's usable by the farmer. Um, because we can have all the great, we can have the greatest information in the world, but if we can't convey it in a meaningful fashion, it's sort of useless. Um, that's so true. So, so, so that's really what I would be promoting for for farmers this fall. Well, that's great. That's very true, Robert. Thank you very much, and um, I really appreciate your insight and all the great information that you shared today. So, thanks for joining us today, and I hope you'll uh, you'll join us again on another episode. Well, I appreciate the opportunity, Stephanie. I hope everyone has a, a good harvest and a safe harvest. And hopefully we'll have some, we always hope for better conditions next year. Let's hope we experience them. That's right. Very true. Okay. Thanks again for joining us uh, for this episode of Inputs uh, by Top Crop Manager. Talk soon. Thanks for tuning into Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager. Special thanks to our podcast sponsor, Economics. To quickly make sense of today's crop nutrition research and maximize your return on investment, visit nutrient-economics.com. That's economics with a K. To catch up on all of our episodes, visit topcropmanager.com slash podcasts. <laughs>